Welcome to the Mark for Greatness podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Stephen Hayes, and along with me again today is the one and only Dr. Billy Smith. Dr. Billy, we've got a special guest with us today. Uh, why don't you go ahead and introduce her? So we have with us our newly elected president, Allison Umberger. And Allison is from Virginia via Washington, D.C., via Nebraska. How about that? That sounds good. So full circle there. Yeah, Allison's an attorney, uh, works in Washington, D.C., is, um, you know, new on the job as president, but she's been on the committee, uh, the old executive committee for several years. She's a seasoned veteran. Which is now our board of directors uh, through our new governance system. Uh, Allie, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Billy kind of alluded to some of those things, but um, I'm sure a lot of people know who you are, but for the people that don't, um, you know, tell us a little bit about your background and then how you got involved in the paints. Sure. Thank you, Stephen and Billy. I'm pleased to be here this afternoon. Um, My love with paints began many years ago. My grandfather leased my first paint horse for me when I was five years old. I believe she was actually a world champion that was shown by a local 4-H girl. That's how he was familiar with her and they were kind enough to share her with me for a summer. And from there, we just loved them. She was such a nice, quiet mare and you could do all kinds of things with her. And so when they were looking for the first horses for me, my dad actually bought me a yearling crop out gelding and a three-year-old Tobiano mare. And they're both beautifully marked. And that was how our paint horses began. Um, one interesting trivia that I like to share is my the foal that we had last spring is actually the fourth generation from that Tobiano mare. So we've done several generations of breeding over the years, which has been a really great, um, great experience. But so, yeah, so I grew up. Um, just outside of Lincoln, Nebraska. My paint horses lived on my grandparents' farm. They had about 90 acres north of town. And I spent most of my summers there growing up and and working with the horses. I went to college at Nebraska Wesleyan. And during my senior year at Nebraska Wesleyan, I became interested in international trade. I had the opportunity to study abroad during college in Germany and really enjoyed that and kind of melded that with my economics major to to get into the international trade side of things. And that's what brought me out here to Washington, D.C. for an internship, actually with the European Union. They have a commission office here, and I worked in their trade section and fell in love with the area. for me, one of the best things about DC is that you can get outside of the city and be in horse country relatively, relatively easily, uh, especially if it's non-rush hour time. You can get out into the country in 30 or 45 minutes. Um, and I stayed out here and continued going to school. Um, during that time, had to take a little bit of time away from the horses. But once I finished school and started working, I got right back into it, started showing out here and became involved with the Virginia Paint Horse Club, which had a really, really great and energetic board. And they're trying new things. And I really, really enjoyed it. And that inspired me to get more involved on the national level. And we had an open director seat, which was lucky for me. So I um, asked if they'd be willing to allow me to serve in that position. And 
So I've now been involved as a national director for 10 years, I think, and have enjoyed serving on the committees and um, yeah, and continuing to be involved and learn more about different aspects of the association that I'm not as familiar with. So, so what was your, uh, what alluded you to run for executive committee? What, what interests you about getting on the board, board of directors now? Sure. Um, I love, I love the whole governance piece of the association. Um, actually what I do a lot in my day job is write rules. So I write regulations for the federal government. So it's an area that I'm interested in and I, I, I know how if rules are written well, they can be helpful for people. And when they're not done as well, it can be really confusing and, and cause a lot of problems. So, you know, I guess I understood before even becoming a national director that if you wanted to create some change within the organization, this was the system you're going to need to go through in order to make that change. And then once I got involved, we've got such a great group of national directors and getting to know the staff better. And I just really enjoyed working with the entire group of folks. And, and so was interested and, and I was encouraged by others to consider, um, consider interviewing to be a candidate for the executive committee. And it's been a great experience. Allie, I'm going to put you on the spot with uh, um, um, knowing what the risk is here. Okay. Okay. So, so the governance of an association and the governance rule making structure you do in your job, how, how did, how is that knowledge or that skill transferable back and forth? And if so, how do you see that happening? Oh, I mean, yes, I definitely, I definitely see similarities in both worlds. Generally, I would say in both groups, you start with group, a group of decision makers um, and identify the issue that you're trying to tackle. And you usually have, so for APHA, we have a committee and in my job at Customs and Border Protection, we would likely bring together stakeholders from various offices and allow everybody to, you know, explore the issue and come up with possible solutions and any challenges that they see to any of the, any of those solutions. Um, and I would say they're, the, the processes are similar. So the majority of the rulemaking that we do at customs is subject to notice and comment procedures to the general public. And within APHA, we do something very similar where all of the rule changes that make it, they're put forward to the committees are shared on the website for all of the members to be able to see and give input to their national directors or to the board of directors um, and allow the members to be involved in the rulemaking process that way. So what's your, um, what's your favorite, most memorable horse moment? My goodness. I don't know. That's really hard. And then I've got another one like that as soon as you're finished with that one. So most memorable horse moment for me or just something that I was a part of? Well, uh, yes, that you were a part of, you saw it, it made an impression on you and you, it just, it just stuck with you. 
I'm going to, I'm going to give you two actually. Um, sorry. I'm not good at just picking one favorite thing. So the first, actually, I, I spent a semester studying abroad in Italy and they have a horse event there called Palio. And I, I think it normally happens in the spring, but it's, it's done in each town and the, the town of Siena is very famous for their palio. I wasn't able to attend the one there, but I went to one in a, a town near Bologna, which is where I lived and studied. And I actually had some friends visiting from home at the time and we all went and it's a, it's a huge festival for the entire city and the neighborhoods each get they each have their silks. They have their jockey that represents the neighborhood. And so I think there were like nine or 10 horses. And it's essentially a street race of horses around the square of the town. And so the guys are on there with their, their very decorated outfits. And they're riding these horses bareback. And the start line, at least at the one that I was at, was literally a rope held across and all the horses lined up. And I will say, I mean, it was very exciting and the most different horse race I've ever seen, but just the, the tension in the air, it was a very, a very intense experience. Um, but really a lot of fun and whoever wins, obviously that neighborhood gets bragging rights for the entire next year. So that was a, one of the most memorable. And I guess I would say more recently was attending the, the run for a million. The first one that they did in Vegas a couple of years ago, that was just, just nonstop incredible. You were on the edge of your seat for all 10 of the runs. It was, it was really amazing. So in Italy, did you think I've got to do that? <laughs> did you ever think that did you think I've got to be, I've got to be on board one of those. Absolutely not. So I've never been really good at going fast on a horse. Um, when I was younger, I had aspirations of being the all around exhibitor, like some of the other kids that started in the morning and finished their day with barrel racing or goat tying. And I, I talked my dad into letting me try it on a couple of occasions. He will never let me forget it. So we were at an open show and I did the keyhole race and yep. they, it was one where they set up the four buckets and you had to run your horse between the buckets and then turn around and come back. Well, my horse did not want anything to do with the buckets. So she went around the side and I landed in the dirt and my dad came walking up just about the time that I was standing up and brushing all of the dirt off of the front of me. So no, no racing events are really in my future. I don't think. But you, you have kind of transitioned into becoming a rainer, right? Like that's your new I, passion, isn't it? It is. And I love it, but I will tell you every week I struggle and they keep telling me, you got to go faster. You got to go faster. So I'm, I'm working on it. Um, but I never had that need, that desire to run as fast as I could. It's fast, slow, not slow, slow. Right. Right. Exactly. <laughs> so, so I think speaking of just a funny story, uh, my wife is a barrel racer and so she, she's all about fast. We don't go slow. We go fast. And so we have an old video of her in high school and she has, um, refined her, uh, aggression with riding fast to this day. Uh, but in this video, she goes around third barrel and she's pie on this horse back, right? Kicking as hard as she can go, you know, she's trying to win. 
she's kicking so hard and her legs are coming up so high that she kicks the horse right out from underneath her and <laughs> kicks all the way to the ground, comes off the back of the saddle is kick. It is the greatest video I've ever seen in my life. Cause she's literally kicking in the air all the way to she hits the ground. She gets up smiling. Everybody was fine, but the video is hilarious. <laughs> That's awesome. There you go. That's fast, fast is what that is. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Well, let's keep keep the momentum going here. Um, one of the things that just happened was our convention. Uh, this was the first time in uh, APHA's history to actually have a virtual convention. All in all, it went really well. Uh, and I think there was a lot of positives that came out of that convention. Um, but just off the cuff, uh, Allie, why don't you just touch a couple of high points that you felt, you know, with this first virtual convention were really good. Yes. Yeah, so there were a number of things. Um, I'm going to be perfectly honest and tell you, I had a, a decent amount of anxiety going into it, um, despite the fact that we had done a lot of preparation and did a lot of practice sessions for everyone to be comfortable with the technology. I just wasn't exactly sure what to expect and how it would go. But I was in the end extremely impressed, not only by our staff and our committee leaders and the way that they were able to manage the meetings, um, but also with our, our committee members and the general members that were attending at, as guests. So we ended up holding 15 different sessions over four days. And I think one of the big positives that folks have been sharing with me is that they were able to attend not only the committee that they're assigned to and that they're usually focused on throughout the year, but because we did the meetings one at a time, they were able to sit in on the other committees, learn what was going on there. And it seemed that folks really, um, really appreciated that understanding what was happening in different areas of the association. Uh, I was really impressed with the amount of participation we had in all of the meetings throughout the weekends. And I, I will say, I thought that folks did a really a great job of navigating the technology. Um, everybody learned how to raise their hands and we were using the chat and we were having very um, respectful and thoughtful discussion on the issues. And uh, the, the fact that so many of our international members were able to participate, I think, was incredible as well. You know, that's one of our largest areas of growth. And um, the, our international members are very passionate and dedicated, and they don't always have the opportunity to share their perspective with, with some of our members here in the U.S. So I, I thought that was a great, a great addition to using the virtual format. Absolutely. Do Dr. Smith, you weren't nervous at all about it. Right? Uh, you, no yeah, you talk about it. We can have a conversation about anxiety. <laughs> that was a little bit tight. So, did, how, Just just a guess. How many times do you have to tell someone to unmute? A few. <laughs> <laughs> As we did for this call uh, moments ago for Dr. Smith. Yeah. Uh, yes. So yeah, that happened a few times. Um, or not unmute. Could you mute yourself? You know, we had to do that a few times. But overall, I, I would agree with Allie. Overall, the response and the in the way people adapted to the technology was pretty good. What was amazing to me though is so so I was looking at the attendance figures. Of of the open meetings, the ones which there's only two committees that don't meet. Uh, in an open format, the rest do, you know, their, their attendance was between 
35 and 130 or 140 um, guests. So these are some of the largest committee meetings we've ever had. And it was certainly the largest number of state of voting state directors that we've ever had right at just just under 150. Normally, what we have is around somewhere between 80 and 90 is what our typical face-to-face convention is. So you're talking about uh, just shy of doubling our convention size. Yeah, that's that's impressive numbers, uh, especially being our first year with virtual convention uh, and then some of the technology around it. That's pretty impressive. We got that much involvement, which I think, you know, 2020 um, definitely probably helped us with that because a lot of more a lot more people had to use uh, the Zoom or a function of that uh, technology. So that probably helped prepare a lot of our people for uh, our first virtual convention. So that's awesome to hear. Yeah, I think I think most people though are kind of zoomed out, but um, but but it would it worked pretty good and uh, worked pretty well given the circumstances. And people were, uh, in my mind, very patient um, with the technology. We had a hiccup early on, but we got got past it. People were very patient about that kind of thing. So, uh, um, you know, there was. There's very little disagreement about having it virtually. I think people understood the risks of bringing everyone together and why this is that was probably the best kind of convention for the circumstances we were under and for the ways of creating minimal risk for our uh, our most uh, vulnerable members, which would be some of those who might have underlying health issues or uh, might be a little older you know, those are, you don't know who those people are necessarily. So you have to assume a certain percentage of your state directors have some underlying issue and you just don't want to put them in a position where they might uh, be either, uh, you know, going to the hospital or worse uh, under the COVID scenario. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's, let's talk about a couple of highlights from the convention. We did have a about 21 rules, I believe, uh, were passed at this year's convention. Um, there's a couple on here that I think are worth mentioning. Um, and Doc, I'll let you kind of kick it off and Allie, jump in and, and give your input as well. Why don't you talk about a couple of those rules that are highlights uh, of this year and, and what that looks like going forward? Well, there's, there's I think, two that are more a little more significant than some of the others. One would institute... Uh, um, parentage verification across the entire breeding spectrum. We have not always required all of our horses to be parentage verified, and this would do that. That begins in, that begins next year in 22, January 1 of 22. The other one is a rule that tries to reward people who by their breeding practices are trying to breed for color and don't get it. So they try to breed uh, paint to paint. They get a solid colored horse. They go through the genetic testing process and it's determined that their horse does not have any colored genes. This is another way for them to be registered if they have three generations on one side or the other on the top or the bottom. So it's a it's a, a last opportunity for a solid colored horse to get into the regular registry and reward those people for taking the risk of breeding color to color. 
Absolutely. Well, before I ask any questions, Allie, what are, what are your thoughts on these two uh, rules and uh, maybe the benefits or what you see coming for the future? Yeah, I think these are both very um, positive developments in our registration rules. Uh, I think anytime we can add additional integrity to our records, so doing requiring the parentage verification is going to do that. I think that's fantastic. And then on the um, the O two O rule. Again, anytime we are providing incentives and rewarding folks for crossing paints to paints, I think I think that's a positive thing. We all know there's an increased risk in breeding paint horses and trying to get the the color that we're looking for. And this takes a little bit of that out, which will will lessen the the financial risk of breeding paints in general, which should be should be a positive thing overall for the association. Right. Absolutely. So, um, you know, moving from those, those two primary, uh, like I said, we had about 20 or 19 others that did, uh, pass during those, the, the question that I have on the parent verification, obviously, uh, I'm with you, Allie, that it does add, um, more legitimacy to our, uh, our integrity to our breed. Um, but, and, Maybe, Billy, you want to fill in a little bit. I know that there are still pieces of this that are being developed. We announced a little bit more on the RG020-2 uh, rule. We just pushed that out a little bit more so that you can have better understanding. You can see that on the website. Uh, but on the parent verification, I think we're still developing that. Obviously, that doesn't go into effect till 22. Uh, but that's one piece that I wanted you to kind of touch on that as rules are passed, um, they don't always go into effect immediately. That's one thing that we, people need to understand that they don't always go in effect right after the convention, the day after we're going to do it. Obviously, there's protocols and procedures that have to be in place. Why don't you touch on that a little bit and, you know, our policy procedure, how we do that function. So there's about there's two important layers to rulemaking that that, uh, you know, we have to handle post convention. So one of those is does that rule change require any modification on our computing end? So that's a a big part of it. The second part of it is what does it require from a from a training standpoint for staff? What, what's that requirement? And then the third piece to that, which is a, um, not everyone thinks about so often, is we have to kind of look at the total collection of rule changes in a particular convention. How how many of them are there and how complex are they? And that that impacts the speed at which you can uh, institute uh, some of these uh, rule changes. So generally speaking, when we have our convention in February, March, the rule doesn't go into effect until January the next year, unless there is special consideration given to um, a, uh, uh, a faster uh, um, introduction of the rule. And then that is predicated just on how fast we can get geared up to begin accepting because it, no matter what the rules say, you still have to have some policies behind it to account for what the, what the rule may not be a hundred percent clear about. So we try to vet those and think about, well, what about this scenario? What about this scenario? And what happens if this happens and things like that. And so you have to be, you have to be prepared, try to be prepared for all the questions people are going to ask. And so that's how we try to vet those in advance. So that's why they don't all start immediately. 
that we need a little time to develop it. And occasionally we'll have rule changes have significant computer programming work that has to be done to accept them, you know, down the road. For example, with this solid colored uh, um, horse, a solid colored horse in our computing system cannot show in regular registry classes. It just won't let it happen. Well, we've got to go through and make allowances for that under this new uh, this new rule. So there's a, a cascading effect of things that we have to study. And even when we do, we still find at the end of the year, we find some scenario we didn't fully think through that shows up that we didn't anticipate. But that part can be kind of perplexing. But that's why those rules don't go into effect necessarily immediately. Some of them do because they don't require much preparation, but some of them do require a fair amount of preparation. Parentage verification is one of those as well. It's it's going to take some preparation on our end. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, if I may, Stephen, sorry. Yeah, absolutely. Jump right in. I, I just like to commend staff for for the flexibility and the can-do attitude with these rule changes. I, I will say just in the years that I've been involved, I think we as an organization have tried to be more re- responsive and we're seeing a lot more rule change proposals that are submitted with a request for early implementation, which is great. Folks are excited to get to get the change in place. I do try to remind our members that early implementation does not mean immediate implementation and you've got to, got to give us a little time and we ask for your patience in, in implementing them. So as, as Billy said, so that we get it right and we don't have issues that we're going to have to deal with down the road. So, so thank you to staff and everyone for, for making these things happen as quickly as possible. It's appreciated. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I feel like APHA has a really good staff and, and is definitely dedicated to our members and our membership. So it's uh, great to be a part of this team. I don't hardly do anything around here. They just let me sit here and look pretty, but uh, it's dang sure fun to be you around. You don't even do that very well. <laughs> <laughs> hey, 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 cool. now. Hey. Um, so Allie, obviously you've been on the uh, executive board slash uh, board of directors now um, for multiple years. Uh, is it seven, six, seven? Total. This, is, this begins my fifth year, I fifth think. Fifth year. Okay. So as you've moved from uh, a traditional board of director seat into the president role, uh, what are you most looking forward to in this new role uh, moving through 2021? Obviously, hopefully COVID starts to lift and those are a little bit different decisions. But, uh, you know, given a regular year, what, what are you lo- most looking forward to? Um, to be honest, I, I'm looking forward to continuing to build on the work that's been been done by the presidents before. I think our board of directors works very well as a team. Um, So while there is a a linear path to the leadership position, every member of the board is able to contribute um, and, and make a difference at any point, anywhere they are throughout the process. Um, I'm excited to see us to continue to develop our partnerships in the stockyards. Uh, as we all know, we just got that launched when everything got shut down about a year ago. Um, so slowly but surely developing those new events. I think there's just 
probably no bounds to what we're going to be able to do in that area with our new neighbors. And I think it's all very exciting. Looking forward to the first reunited world show this summer. I think that's going to be a positive change for the organization and and yeah, continuing with our e-shows and some of the, some of the things that maybe we, you know, COVID, COVID presented a lot of challenges that we weren't looking for, but I think in the end, we'll realize that there were some things that developed out of that, that are positives that we can carry into the future. Yeah, I would definitely have to agree. E-shows being one of those, um, that was definitely a a fun project. And I know um, Elizabeth uh, has done a really good job of keeping those things going. And and I definitely think it has value in the marketplace, even post-COVID. So uh, it's kind of fun to see, like you say, there are challenges, uh, but there is also presents opportunities for us to grow and expand our wings a little bit. So that's super exciting. Um, let's talk a little bit. The other thing that came out of convention that comes out every year is we do elect new board members. Um, and with our new governance system, we elected two this year, which will transpire over to, I believe 12. Is that correct, Billy? We'll end up at 12 in 2023. Right. So we did elect two, um, Miss Monica, and I believe she's from Germany. And then, um, we also elected Miss Diane, who I believe lives in California. And why don't you talk a little bit about them, Billy, and um, we'll we'll actually have them on a little later in the show and visit it with them about their past and who they are and what they're excited about. But um, I'd like to get you and Allie's feedback a little bit on having them a part of the board. Uh, you know, Monica being one of our international members, directors, and now on the board of directors, it's uh, pretty exciting to have that input, I feel like. So um, why don't you talk a little bit about them? So to start with Diane, you're you're talking about a person who's lived her entire life uh, involved in the paint horse, uh, community. And so she brings this wealth of history and institutional knowledge and her mom and dad were both trainers, horse trainers. So she comes from an important part of the United States too, uh, 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 one of our largest, uh, states, uh, for the production of paint horses. So she brings that whole wealth of knowledge, which is super important in a leadership role. And of course, Monica is our first European uh, uh, member. She's not our first international one. We, we have had uh, at least one Canadian in the past, but it's been some years ago since we've had someone from outside of the United States. But I do think it kind of breaks um, kind of an unintended ceiling up there of, of d- a domestic or North American um, board members. So she's very similar in the sense that she's been involved in pay horses for many, many years, many decades. She's a respected judge. I mean, a respected trainer and a respected uh, lesson giver. She does a lot of, she takes care of a lot of kids on horseback. So she's, she brings a wealth of that kind of knowledge. uh, And she's been to the United States many times, been to the world show many times. So she has a, a worldwide view, and that worldwide view is important for us. Um, a significant percentage of our members come from outside of the United States, and uh, it's important that they have representation. You know, I'm hopeful that this is the beginning of something new uh, where we always have uh, at least one representative from outside of the United States on the board of directors to bring that s- a somewhat different perspective. Absolutely. And Allie, what are your thoughts? What are you most excited about working with the new new board direct, or board of directors? 
Well, I will say every time that we add add new folks to the group, it definitely shifts the dynamic a little bit. So I'm I'm excited to get to know them both a little bit more. And I I think it's great um, to have representation. I, this is it's pretty far reaching now, all the way from California to Bavaria. Um, I will say just one thing of note, we we did bring two new members on board last year as well. So I feel like that somewhat helped us prepare for this. And as Billy mentioned, we're in a transition where we will eventually be bringing on three new members to the board each year. And, and I do think that presents unique challenges. Um, I think there's a lot of upsides to it, but the, the new folks, you know, they're drinking from the fire hose a little bit at the beginning until they, until they find their feet. But that said, I think, one of the major benefits of the new governance structure that we're transitioning to is that it, it provides more flexibility for our directors that are interested in serving at, at this level. Um, previously, it, it was a, a many year commitment that generally culminated with you serving as the president and the past president and not, not all of our state directors are interested in that. So I think this will allow additional voices to come onto the board and um, contribute, which I think is, is going to benefit the association overall. Absolutely. What what would you say um, was the most surprising uh, thing for you, you know, as these new board members come on? Um, what When you came on, what was the most surprising thing for you when you first got to the board or then it was the executive committee? Oh, gosh, Stephen, I don't know. Most surprising? <laughs> uh, All the phone calls you get? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you know, and I will say... Um, you know, wisdom shared from past presidents. I'll, I'll never forget Greg Reisinger told me in that first year, he said, you're going to get a lot of phone calls this year. And he said, but don't worry, it, it'll settle down. And and then I think it starts back up this year when you when you take the reins as president. Um, but I, I guess so most surprising thing, this probably isn't going to be what you expected, but probably didn't hit me until later in the year, but the most surprising thing is the bonds that form among the board members. Um, I consider the folks that I've served with now really great friends and I really enjoyed learning more about them and not just not just their, their horse life, their paint horse life, but learning about them as people and their backgrounds and all of their skill sets. And um, it really is a great group. Don't, don't get me wrong. There are difficult times and we tackle some really tough issues, but um, in the end, it's, it's a great group of people that all have the best interest of the paint horse at heart. And, and that has been really rewarding. Yeah, absolutely. Well, the other the other thing I was going to talk a little bit about is the onboarding process, because we do have that. And I think that's an important thing to mention. I've been involved with some other associations through my career. Um, and I, I feel not that I've been onboarded to a board of directors, but I do feel that APHA uh, as a whole does a really good job at onboarding uh, our new board members, because there is a lot that um, you may not realize that APHA does. Um, so, Billy, why don't you talk a little bit about that process, and then I'll let Allie um, talk a little bit about her uh, onboarding, what sh- how she you know went through that process, and you know what how much it kind of opened her eyes to the, all the things that APHA does on a daily basis. 
Well, I think I think we do. I, I wouldn't say we do a great job of onboarding. We do a better job than we used to do of onboarding. And so we continue to try to enhance that. There's really two forks to it the way I see it. Uh, and one of them is, is helping new board members understand what happens at the office level. And that's one of the things I try to help them do through a couple of meetings that we have. And then there's the there's then there's the other prong, which is the types of activities the board is engaged in, and and there the the board is the policy making arm, and the staff is sort of the execution arm of those policies, and so helping board members understand how those things work, uh, how they work mechanically. Uh, how when the board makes a decision, it goes to the staff and then we try to build a plan to make it happen. Things like that uh, is not always that clear when uh, board members come on. I always they always will say, gosh, I didn't know that's how that worked. And so so we do that and then we sort of pass them over to the board. And then the board has kind of a mentoring kind of uh, uh uh, program in place that Allison could probably talk to better than me. Absolutely. Yeah. Why don't, why don't you give us your feedback there, Allison, and, and uh, let us know how it went for you. And then, you know, obviously as moving into president, what that looks like. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, as Billy said, I think my orientation was really a two-step process. Uh, one involved um, heading down to the office and spending a day there and meeting some of the other staff that support the board of directors. Uh, Billy presenting me with a giant binder of board <laughs> board policies to study. And, you know, I remember thinking, oh, goodness, when is the test? When is the test on this? <laughs> it's just tomorrow. Uh, <laughs> this may be first thing in the morning. Uh, so, so yeah, there's there was a lot. And, um, and understanding the accounting and the financial side of things. Um, and then I think a couple of weeks after that, um, I had a phone call orientation with then president Craig Wood and president elect Michael Short. And they, you know, did a great job of preparing me for what to expect from the meetings and how often the, you know, how often we meet and how we communicate as a board. Craig made some great um, technological additions, enhancements, I guess I would say to the way that the board communicates, which I think has been great. We're all, we can all be very plugged in, um, and have access to all the resources that we need, which makes the job a lot easier. Um, so I, like I said, I think, Every year it seems, and the the last year was was an intense one. I was trying to think back to when we had, we ended up having our first emergency meeting to address all of the challenges we were going to face because of COVID. And it was fairly soon after convention had wrapped up. Um, so I think those of us who've been on the board a little bit longer do the best, do our best to try to make the new people feel comfortable as soon as possible. Let them know that, you know, there's no question that they shouldn't ask. Don't hesitate to reach out to us and that we want to make this a good experience for you as well. Um, and, and, you know, during the first year, you don't know what you don't know. And sometimes you just have to go through the process to, to figure that out. And then I, I do think hopefully by the end of the first year, most folks are feeling, feeling really in rhythm with, with where we're headed. 
Absolutely. And so well, if you're going to get on the board of directors, surprised you the most though, what, what was the thing you didn't know and you were really surprised you didn't know it? Well, I think it's natural for, for members to be very aware of the activities that they are involved in. Um, and, you know, you're less likely to be aware of all the things that the association does that you don't participate in. So I guess that's the, that's the behind the scenes, um, you know, when folks will say, well, why, why aren't they working on this? Where is this? And, and you have to tell them, well, there's eight or 10 other things that are in the air at the moment. And we're trying to keep them all juggled and make, make every part of the association a success. Um, so, yeah, I think just the, the breadth of activities that we're involved in, um, it's, it's very impressive. And I, I think it's something that not, you know, the average members aren't aware of, of how active we are across the industry. Yeah, Stephen, I, I would say that's also, you know, most, I think most members see kind of from their back door, they see what is important to them. But one of the really critical things that we have to try to do is be that resource for the entire paint horse community. And that's, that's always difficult to do. It's always a balancing act. And uh uh, there, there are parts of our community that are small, but they have just as passionate people as well. And we're trying to accommodate all that as a challenge of any association. But I think um, uh, we do it as well as we can do it, given our resources. Right. And I, one other thing that that comes as a surprise, and I don't mean to sound like a broken record here, but I do think we've got an amazing staff. And when you find out the tenure and the longevity of career of some of the staff in the office, I, that was very eye opening to me. And I think that's a great reflection on the organization as well. Thank Billy. I'm going to take off my hat. It's all these compliments we're getting. It's getting tight. Well, Listen, if I was as bald as you, I'd leave my head <laughs> Well, that's true. If I was as old as you, I'd dye my beard, but is what it is. How that goes sometimes. Well, um, we're going to wrap this up. Um, but, you know, before we do, Allie, is there anything else you want to share um, about the convention or about your new year or just anything in general uh, that you're passionate about um, that you want to share with everybody listening? Well, just I think we have a fabulous group of state directors and paint horse representatives and ambassadors. And I encourage any APHA members across the country, if you want to learn more about what we do at the association with the governance, uh, reach out to your local regional club and or you can find your state director in your area. Uh, Every I think everybody loves to talk about paint horses. So don't hesitate to reach out and, and get connected. And we, we'd love to see new faces and hear new voices. So um, please, please join us. Absolutely. And then any complaints can be directed to Dr. Billy Smith's office. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, Allie, I really appreciate you taking the time to visit with us a little bit. Tell us a little bit about you and um, about the convention and some of the things that you're passionate about with paint horses. We appreciate you uh, being on the board and being a part of what we're doing here at APHA as well. And, um, you know, just taking time because, you know, what people don't realize is that y'all are all volunteers on the board of directors um, that take time out of your daily lives to uh, 
to, you know, help better the paint horse industry. And, you know, as you said, you've been on there for five years. Uh, that's a lot of time spent, a lot of Slack messages, a lot of emails, and a lot of phone calls uh, that you've take that you don't have to take. So um, just on, on behalf of the staff here, we appreciate you guys being a part of uh, APHA and, and taking time out of your day. Well, thank you. I am going to I'm going to make one last plug for an upcoming event to ask people to mark their calendars. One of my favorite events of last year was the Cowgirl Gathering. I know that was the uh, inaugural event last November, and it was fantastic. We I ended up, you know, encouraging a few others to join for the weekend as well, not really knowing what to expect. And and the Essence Exchange was fabulous. A lot of great female leaders across the industry. So I encourage everyone to block out some time in your calendar this November and plan to make a trip to Fort Worth and and experience this event. It's it's really something. Yes, absolutely. Probably need to watch out for the tickets that'll be in the uh, silent auction again this year because I think that's where some of some of you guys got your tickets. So yep. have to jump on that and and uh, bid away, spend some money. Thank you. Thanks, Allie.